Mark 14, verses 53 to 72 says this, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and the chief priests, and, all the, and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that, he has made, that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Oops. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these, these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word, to be challenged by your life. Um, and uh, God, we pray that as we work through this passage, that your spirit would uh, speak. God, I just um, yield myself to you, Lord. Pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning, strengthen us with your scripture. Um, God, teach us. Um, more about what you have done for us and, and convict us and challenge us to cling to you even more closely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so we've got another sandwich here today. A little, we, go for it. Go ahead. <laughs> the very, the, I mean, it's still there. I don't it, oh, yeah, it's got, it's got added sugar. Uh, maybe. I don't know. I think of the sandwiches that I've put up, this is the saddest sandwich. Would you agree this is maybe the saddest sandwich? To... So this is what I found when I searched lonely sandwich. <laughs> I found other things, too, but is it like lonely sandwich? Yeah. Um, this is a lonely-looking sandwich, and um, yeah. The sandwich feels lonely to me today, okay? Like, I, you know, as we, got, as we walk through here, we look at Peter, and we look at Jesus, uh, you see two people in a crowd just 
totally alone, you know, and we'll be walking through that as we go, but um, we're not unfamiliar with loneliness in America. Uh, we're, we're the most connected people of all time. Uh, the ability to connect is at an all-time high. There's no, like, you can have video calls with anybody you want, like right now. If you wanted to call someone on a video, you could do that right now. Um, we're so connected, but ironically, uh, in spite of that fact, we're also one of the loneliest generations that has walked the earth, right? Uh, they say something like 60% of people would say, I've experienced significant times of loneliness in the past year. Looked at my year and said, yeah, I feel alone in the midst of this. Um, <clears throat> so there's a number of studies you can look up and, and check on that, like look, look up what, uh, what kind of things are going on. But there's a couple of quotes I came across as I was looking at this. And one of the things was this, that we're a people that has so focused on caring for ourselves that we've ignored those around us. Like even researchers are saying uh, we're, we're actually missing a component of being human by so fixating on how to improve ourselves that we've missed something that it is to actually engage with other people and the value of it. Um, and it said, I found this quote from actually our, our Surgeon General uh, who said this, Vivek, Vivek Murphy, Murphy. Uh, he said, we ask people to exercise and eat a healthy diet and take their medications, he said, but if we truly want to be healthy, happy, and fulfilled as a society, we have to restructure our lives around people. Right now, our lives are centered around work. We base our lives and how we do our things around how to do our work. And so we've taken this mentality of, well, this is just another checklist to do. Well, I can do that over the screen. No problem. I don't have to have actual interaction with people. And we can't treat our lives this way. We're more connected than ever, but while digital connection may be helpful for accomplishing work, it fails to fulfill the deep need we have for actually being a community to one another. Um, today's passage, like I said, is this picture of Jesus and Peter. And they're in a very crowded space, probably, I don't know, maybe twice as big as this you know, space in terms of like the house. Um, Peter's in a courtyard, which I'll talk about here in a minute, but he's in a courtyard, and Jesus is there too, and the place is full of people. The whole Sanhedrin has come together there, and they're both like distinctly alone as we walk through this. So verses 53 and 54, um, let's go back to those. It says this, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders of the scribes came together. Um, this is a bit unusual what's going on here, actually. Um, usually, when a council is gathered together to give any sort of judgment, um, especially a capital offense, that, that council or whatever uh, would gather together at the temple in a, a house or a, a room called the Hall of Hewn Stones. Um, supposed to be a secure environment, right? There's stone all around, there's no way to kind of listen in on the proceedings. Only those that need to be in the room are in the room. Um, and typically, a capital case would be held here at the Temple Mount. Also, typically, uh, a case like this was not allowed to be taken up on the eve of or during a Sabbath or a festival, which we're running into both in this night. Um, also, one of the things that we see in the, this gathering, we'll talk about a little bit later, is that the charge of blasphemy itself, which is later uh, 
assailed against Jesus, could not be sustained unless the individual, the one speaking, the one accused, is the one who spoke a curse on God, which is not actually what happens when we go through the trial. So we come to this place, the, the house of the chief priests, and all these individuals around, and verse 54, it says this, Peter followed Jesus at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. The scene is likely an inner courtyard that's open to a larger room where the proceedings are happening, so those in the courtyard can kind of take stock of and, and see what is happening in the room where the council is being held. Um, and so just imagine like, you know, an upper room, kind of balcony type area, and then a courtyard down below with people just kind of milling around. There's a fire there, you know, all this kind of thing. So picture that in your head. This is the scene that we're walking into. And you have to wonder, as Peter comes into this courtyard inside the chief priest's um, home, what is going through his head? How, how is Peter feeling in this moment, um, in his heart, in his mind, as he circles back to Jesus after running away from Jesus during his arrest, right? Everyone ran away. Like, when Jesus was arrested, all of them fled. They didn't go with Jesus. They ran away. They weren't caught. They were running from Jesus, not standing with him. And if you rewind to the arrest, Peter was ready to go to war. I mean, he, he had his sword. He was ready to go. He might have truly believed that what was going to happen in that moment was that the clouds were going to open up and Jesus was going to lead them in victory against Rome and all the you know, corrupt leaders of their time. That, that literally might have been the thing that's in the back of Peter's head as the guards are coming up to arrest Jesus. He was so convinced of this that he took his own sword and strikes the servant of the high priest. Luke twenty-two forty-eight to 51 puts the scene this way. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, that is, that he was going to be arrested, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them, that is Peter, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Peter's expectation of that moment is that it's, it's time for war. It's time for us to go ahead and bring in the rule of the Messiah. Right? That's what's happening. We're following the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. And so this is the time. He's about to be arrested. There's no other time for us to do this. This is the time. And he takes his sword and strikes the chief official of who is coming out to arrest him. And so, again, probably what he expects is for Jesus to perform some powerful, destructive miracle against the evil ones that are coming out to get him. That's what we should expect. But Jesus, it says, verse 51, says, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Instead of leading a war, Jesus surrendered. Peter is confused. He's probably hurt. He's probably tired, but he's still following after Jesus, trying to see what the next thing is going to be. So this is the first part of the sandwich. Mark cuts to, uh, from this scene 
up into the room where Jesus is being tried and says in verse 55, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. In three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this testimony, even about this, their testimonies did not agree. So the chief priest is gathering all these people, Caleb, what do we have against him, right, basically? And all they have is this charge about the temple. And they say, he said, I'm going to destroy this temple, and I'm going to build it back in three days. Which we know is just not what he said. <laughs> Mark chapter 13 and Luke 21, uh, Jesus prophesies about the destruction of the temple, but he doesn't say that he's going to be the one to destroy it. He simply says that you see these precious stones, they will be destroyed, not one upon another. In John 2, he speaks of the raising of himself. In John 2, they're asking him to do a sign, and in John 2, he refers to himself as the temple and says that if you destroy this temple, I will be raised in three days. So even their testimony is wrong in and of itself, but also, as they're giving it, they can't even agree on how it should be stated. Right? So you can just imagine them in the corner going like, okay, I think he said something about the temple. You remember, you remember, you remember? And then someone goes up and says, it's this. Okay, where's the second witness? Well, it's this. Uh, that's not what he said. That's a little different than how he put it and when he said Like, they don't even agree on the charge. So their testimonies don't agree. Their argumentation doesn't go anywhere because their testimonies don't agree. But in spite of that, the high priest turns to Jesus and says, basically, what's the deal? <laughs> like... As if he doesn't know that the whole thing is a charade, that it's in the wrong place, that it's at the wrong time, and that the charges don't exist. He still turns, instead of to testimony of how Jesus is to be tried, turns to Jesus and says, how are you guilty? He says, have you no answer to make? What is, what, uh, what is it that these men testify against you? And if you're following, Jesus should say, well, they haven't actually brought anything against me, as you know, that can be shown as testimony of anything. But being wiser than any of us probably would be in that moment and lashing out to defend ourselves, he just doesn't answer. He gives no answer. Tr truthfully, because there's no answer to give, right? Like, any answer that he says at this moment is going to be received as an incrimination of himself. This is like where we come up with the, I plead the fifth. You know, like, actually, there's, there's nothing I can say that won't kind of incriminate me in your eyes, but I didn't do it, right? Usually when we say, I plead the fifth, it's like, you did it, you know? It's like, for Jesus, that would have actually worked for him. He has no answer to give. 
So when he doesn't answer, the high priest gets to his real question, which is, who does Jesus believe he is? And he says in verse 61, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Son of the Blessed One. Um, We know that the testimony from Peter is that you're the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Right? We know that the, the title and the name and following of Jesus has been that perhaps this is the Messiah, right? That's, that's who people are thinking Jesus is. Perhaps he's even the Son of God. I mean, he's talked about himself as the son of the vineyard owner, right? He's, he's sat on the lake that would be a place to gather to himself a following as Messiah, like, All these things about his life have been put together to show that he is the Messiah. We think that the high priest probably said, son of the blessed one, so that he wouldn't say the name of God and then somehow be accused of blasphemy himself in the proceedings or whatever, as as if he cares about the proceedings. Again, it's like meaningless uh, righteousness or holiness that he's purporting to have, right? Oh, I'm going to honor God in this moment by calling him son of the blessed, because I wouldn't say God. The high priest says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Um, Just some background on these two statements uh, from Daniel 7 as well as Psalm 110. Um, The Son of Man is spoken of um, throughout uh, throughout Daniel, and it speaks of him as one who comes through through the clouds. Daniel 7, 13 to 14 says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So Daniel is saying at that time that that the Messiah is one who's going to come like a man, like a son of man. And that that Messiah is going to come before the Ancient of Days, that is God, right? Jesus is going to come before God, right? And to him was given that is the Son, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, he's taking on in the proceedings uh, the, the declaration that he is the Son of Man the Son of Man that will be presented before the Ancient of Days. The, the, the reference for those in attendance would be very, very clear that this is the passage that he is referring to. On top of that, a, a passage that's quoted throughout the New Testament in a number of places, Psalm 110, says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely 
on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning to the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus is saying, I am the one that will be seated at the right hand of the Lord. I am the one that will be presented before the Ancient of Days. I am the one to whom all nation, tribe, and tongue will bow in eternal dominion to me. Jesus could not be more clear to them about who he believes he is, about who he truly is. And in the fairness of it, he has committed no crime because he actually is speaking the truth. But again, to return to the fact that the whole trial is not about whatever Jesus wants to say in this moment, but really about prosecuting regardless of what he says. They don't believe that he is this. They don't believe he's the Messiah. They don't believe he's the one that will sit at the right hand of God. They don't believe he's the Son of Man to be presented before the Ancient of Days. They do not believe this about Jesus. And so they view this statement as an admission of his guilt. The only thing he's guilty of is being who God has made him to be. Who he has been from eternity past and will be to eternity forward. The Son of Man, before the Ancient of Days, sitting at the right hand of God. Truly, God in flesh. As we read from, first, uh, from Colossians 1, all things were made by him and through him and for him. In him is all the supremacy. For Jesus to testify that, that he is the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven is the truest thing he could say. And they only hear what they want to hear. And what they want to hear is this, verse 63. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? Did he curse the name of God? No. He didn't. The stretch is that maybe he claimed to be God and whatever, so, you know, that's maybe putting a curse on God that you would associate yourself with God and that way. maybe that's how they're getting there, but they should come with C.S. Lewis and say, well, he's just a lunatic, like, let him go. He thinks he's God. He's obviously not in our eyes, in everybody else's eyes, right? Like, that's what their posture should be towards someone who says, I am God, if they don't believe he's God. It should be like, 
bye. <laughs> Have a nice day. <laughs> You're not God. He didn't curse God. So he says to the whole Sanhedrin, the, the whole council, what is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. They held up the charge of blasphemy. And some began to spit on him, and they covered his face, and they struck him, and they said to him, prophesy. The charge uh, of blasphemy is supposed to be received with, I mean, not that this is any better, um, is supposed to be received with stoning, actually. So you're supposed to take the person, put them in the midst of the congregation outside of the camp. So you're supposed to remove them from the presence of the temple. And I'm not sure if that means Jerusalem also, but probably outside the city wall, I would guess, at least. You're supposed to remove them, put them in front of all the people, and then stone them with hands on head. That's supposed to be the, the procedure. I guess they want to, I guess they realize that, that they can't enforce the death penalty under Rome, that Rome is going to have to do that, and so they want to get their punishment in beforehand. So they spit on him and cover his face and start striking him and mock him, saying, well, prophesy to a man whose whole life has been prophecy, fulfilled and told. They say, speak something. He says, you won't even hear. And they turned him over to the guards, and the guards received him with blows. That is, they beat him up more. He gets a personal pre-punishment party from the Sanhedrin before being turned over to Rome. Mark then finishes the sandwich. Right, we got, here's Peter warming himself by the fire, watching this and probably wrestling heavily in his heart with what in the world is happening this night. And in verse 66, it says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, I mean, just like, what a choppy transition, right? Like, and Jesus was beat to pulp, and Peter was in the courtyard. Like, you couldn't be more stark with it, Mark. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus? But he denied it, saying, I neither know what you uh, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. Jesus is being tried by the entire Sanhedrin and the high priest in the upper room, and standing firmly for the call on his life to proclaim the kingdom of God and to call others to repentance and belief. And in the courtyard, Peter is warming himself at a fire. 
and the servant girl of the high priest proceeds with his interrogation. Jesus is facing off with the leaders of the entire nation, and Peter is facing off with the one with least authority in the entire house. And she says, you were also with the Nazarene, Jesus. And he denied it. And says, I neither know nor understand. That is, I haven't heard about it in one sense, and I don't understand even what you're talking about. I have no personal knowledge or comprehension of what this guy represents. He is still running even though he is there. He is still fleeing from what is happening, even though he is present in the room. So he moves from the fire to get away from the servant girl, pesky servant girl, goes to the gateway. So he's gone further away from Jesus physically, trying to get a different environment, whatever. A commentator that I read said this about the situation. He said, a change of place is no substitute for a change of heart. Isn't that true? Turns out moving to Florida doesn't take away problems that you might have in your life. I say that because a lot of people move to Florida thinking that their problems are going to stay in Michigan or Ohio or New York or pick your state. Start a new life in Florida. Everything's perfect down there. Palm trees and breezes and nine months of summer. And <laughs> word, that's right. But as much as we change in proximity, it doesn't change what's in our heart. We cannot run from who God has made us to be. So Peter moves to the gateway. He moves further from uh, from Jesus and away from the fire and a rooster crows for the first time. In verse 69, the servant girl is uh, not having it. Chases Peter down. Pesky servant girl. Saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, the man is one of them. But again he denied it second time. And after a little while, even the bystanders join in and say, certainly you're one of them. You're a Galilean. Why are you here? And Peter invokes a curse on himself and swears, I do not know this man of whom you speak. He's saying it with as much emphasis as possible. He's drilling it home here. And at that moment, the rooster crows a second time. And Peter remembered what Jesus said. Before the rooster crows twice, he will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. I actually can't get Luke's account out of my head from all week long. Like, in Luke, chapter 2261, it says, in, in this very moment, as soon as the rooster crows, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. I mean, I, I can't 
really, I can't understand how that would feel. Peter, Peter turned into a puddle. I mean, it's literally, you can't say it any other way. He lost it and wept and cried like a baby, as he should. The juxtaposition between Jesus and Peter couldn't be more evident. Here is Jesus standing firm in his mission before the most influential leader of the nation, and Peter is below cowering at the accusation of the lowest in authority of the house, a young female servant. And they're both completely alone. They're surrounded, but no one is with them. This is a challenging scene to think through, to try and like put yourself in, to, to be a bystander there, to like just put yourself in this room. It's so hard to even imagine how, how weighty it would feel. And, and I think for Peter and, and Jesus, they, they feel it the most. I mean, the, the bystanders and the chief priests and high priests, whatever, like they're just protecting their space. Like they know what they're doing. They're feeling in control of the moment. They're not, obviously, they're totally out of control. But at this moment, they feel like everything's going the right way. They've got Jesus where they want him to be. They've got a charge of, of blasphemy against them. Um, but for Jesus and Peter, this is, they're on a whole nother planet compared to the people that are around them. And so there's a few things that we should take away from a scene like this. Um, and the first is this. Jesus knows the lonely heart. Jesus knows what it is to be alone. I mean, no human has felt this alone. Again, Jesus, 100% man, 100% God. From a human level, you cannot feel more alone than this. For your whole life to be leading to this and for this group of disciples that you've been with for three years to be pouring out your life unto them and teaching them and, and uh, performing these amazing miracles before them and doing all these things and then for them all to disappear at the kiss of Judas. Nobody has felt that alone. And 
And so maybe you feel alone today. I hope not. We try very hard here to not let people be alone. Maybe we try too hard at that. Maybe we're too heavy with the together, but probably not, actually. Anyway, you can never have enough of it. But if you're feeling alone today, first thing you need to know is that Jesus knows. He knows your feeling. He knows it better than anybody knows it. Moms usually feel alone, even though they've got a gang of kids around them, right? It's, it's true. Does nobody see what I'm juggling here? If you feel alone today, Jesus knows how you feel. He knows exactly how you feel. And in the midst of a time when he was completely alone and discarded by his friends and and set there to go before uh, this council unto his death, he clung to this one thing. The joy set before him. His Father in heaven loves him, knows him. And his Father in heaven has seen fit that the the only way we can make the situation in humanity right again is if you die. And so if you feel alone today, die to yourself. Die to yourself. It sounds like I said, like, you needed to commit suicide because you feel alone, right? Actually, I want to address it because suicide is one of the most selfish things you can actually do. Because you fail to see around you all those who care for you and how this moment impacts so many others for the rest of their lives. So the most important thing you can do if you feel alone is to let go of your selfishness. And pour in to those around you that need you. Because if there is breath in your lungs, God has a purpose for your life. And I'm sure for Jesus, that didn't feel so good in this moment. He could have pushed the eject button himself. He could have jumped out of this scene entirely with one decision. But he didn't. 
because he knew the purpose he was called to, and he was going to see it through completely. Even if that's a, a clown trial that has no evidence, he's going to go through it. So first of all, know if you're alone that Jesus knows how you feel in this. And instead of losing hope, he wants you to turn to him and find strength in him and find hope and rest in him. And and he wants you to ask the Lord, Lord, what do I do with the life you have given me? And I will tell you the answer will be Find people. Find humans that you were called to give of yourself to. The cure for loneliness is not a medication, is not a personal hobby, is not exercise for exercise sake. It's not these things. The cure for loneliness is very simple. Find some people and give yourself to them. Say, I'm here and I love you guys. Will it be easy? No, no, it won't be easy because people suck. (laughs) It's just, it's true. Sorry. (laughs) But that's exactly why we need each other. Because of that very thing. And so if you're alone, man, the Lord doesn't want you to sit there in a pity party. He doesn't want you to cower under the pressure. He doesn't want you to be interrogated by a servant girl and run away to the gate. 